passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, about a week after my wife and I uh, moved into our first home, our basement flooded. And uh, this wasn't just like a few wet spots. This was how we met some of our neighbors. Um, their children came over in swimsuits to play in our basement. And uh, that, that was the, and granted, they were pretty young. Um, but that was a, a great uh, initiative to, to get to know some of our neighbors as they're coming to bail out water out of our basement. But that was the first of a several-year battle um, with a, a wet basement. And I think both Crystal and I, uh, we knew deep down that uh, this, this meant drastic steps had to be taken, and yet we did all that we could to avoid that, um, to avoid the reality of the fact that our, we had a compromised foundation in our house. And so everything we did, you know, we replaced the gutters, that didn't help. We regraded the outside of our house, that didn't help. We installed another sump pump, that didn't help. And nothing would address the issue. It was our house's foundation. And that was causing the issues, and it wasn't until we got that fixed that all of these problems went away. And this morning's text actually looks at a compromised foundation as well, except it's not an actual building. It's the, the foundation of King David's reign. This morning's text, 2 Samuel chapter 3, addresses this, reveals this, this um, well, these cracks in the moral foundation of, of David's character. And these cracks in his moral character actually lead to uh, these disasters that we see in the latter half of the book of 2 Samuel. You get to the end of 2 Samuel, and it seems like you're kind of like, what, what happened? Because we have the story of David and Bathsheba, and then we have the story of his sons rebelling against him. And, and we're wondering, what exactly happened? Well, everything can really be tied back to some of the things that we see in our chapter, in our text this morning. David's moral weaknesses here foreshadow everything that we will see from the rest of 2 Samuel, even into the beginning of 1 Kings, because they're not addressed, because there isn't repentance, awareness, and a change of life. And it leads to chaos, not just for David, not just for his family, but really for all of Israel. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 3. That's going to be our text this morning. Let me uh, share with you an important principle we've seen um, in 1 Samuel, we've seen in 2 Samuel. Um, I, 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 we see it this morning as well. It, it, it's worth remembering, repeating, and that is this, that when God is absent from the narrative in 1 and 2 Samuel, so when God isn't really mentioned or when God is mentioned, but he's just kind of pushed off to the side, is, is on the periphery, then David especially is prone to go astray. He's prone to walk away from the Lord. He's prone to fall into unbelief. And that shouldn't really surprise us because when we look at our own lives, we see the exact same thing, right? When we look at our lives, we, we see that when we push God to the side or when we say, hey, God, you know what? I want you to take a back seat to, to my own wants, my own desires, or maybe we even just say, God, I want you out of the car altogether. We don't really care about what your kingdom, we're not focusing or factoring in the kingdom of God, then the rut of unbelief is not all that far behind. And so as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 3, we're going to see that that's the case with David here. God is mentioned a handful of times 
here in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And yet I would say that the way that Abner and the way that David mentioned God in these verses really is just like a cultural reflex. It's just maybe the same way that many people today would say, oh, God bless you after someone sneezes. So that God is mentioned here, but, but it's not really until the very end of the chapter, the, the last two verses actually, that we see God factors into David's approach to thinking about his life and his situations. And, and so we, we find ourselves in the midst of what I would call a, a relatively godless chapter. And yet, that doesn't mean that God isn't at work, that God isn't doing something here in this chapter. So let's go ahead and jump into our text. Um, roadmap for this morning, we're going to split this text, this chapter, into four separate parts, um, and then we're going to consider three observations at the end of our time of what God might be teaching us through this text. So we're going to start with this, a description of David's family found in verses 2 through 5, starting in verse 2. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second, Kiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Makah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. I want us to just take a moment and kind of remember where we are in Israel's history to this point. David is king, but he's not king of all of Israel. At this moment, he's just the king of, of Judah, and his capital is in Hebron. It's, it's located in Judah, and he reigns for seven and a half years over only the tribe of Judah. And during this time, over this seven and a half year period, there is a civil war, and we'll look at that more in a moment. But we could sum up this period of David in Hebron with just four words many sons, many wives. Many sons, many wives. That's what this text is making clear. We're just told David has six sons, and yet he has six sons, each coming from a different woman. And this likely raises some eyebrows for us because as we consider David, this man that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 13 described as a man after God's own heart, it, it, it might surprise us, especially when we realize, well, this text isn't explicitly condemning David's actions here. And yet we would also say that even though this text doesn't explicitly condemn David's actions, it's clearly ominous in tone. If you're familiar with the rest of 2 Samuel, if you're familiar with the story of 1 Kings, you'll notice that three of his sons that are mentioned here all have massive, massive implications for David and his reign. The first one is this, Amnon, David's firstborn. You flip forward just a couple chapters in 2 Samuel chapter 13, you're going to see that Amnon rapes his half-sister. After that, we have another son, Absalom, mentioned. Absalom goes ahead and murders Amnon for his actions, and then he leads a coup to take over the throne from his father David in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 18. And then as a part of that, he rapes all of his father's concubines as his claim to the throne. And then we get to 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2, and then we see Adonijah. 
He's a part of his own coup to try to take the throne from his brother, Solomon, that was David's desired successor. And we begin to realize that at the root of all of these horrific actions is David's polygamy. In fact, every time you look at polygamy in the Old Testament, you encounter it, it might not be explicitly condemned, but it is clearly implied that there are disastrous effects when it is employed. And that's true throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't matter if it is Abraham in Genesis. It doesn't matter if it's Gideon in the book of Judges. It doesn't matter if it's Elkanah in 1 Samuel or David here and on and on. But I would go further than just saying that this text implicitly condemns David's actions. It's not just foreshadowing the disaster that awaits David. It's actually saying that this is a, 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 an outright rejection of God's word. A few weeks ago, as we jumped back into 2 Samuel, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17 is this really, really important chapter because it frames the idea of kingship in the Old Testament, how God desires for a king to act and to behave, how he wants his king to be. Generations before David, generations before Saul, God gives his people instructions on how the king is supposed to order their entire life so that they can live a life pleasing to the Lord. Remember what we saw, we, we've said this multiple times, the overarching message of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is that we need a king who's going to point us to the true king, the king of glory, God himself. That's what the, the focus of 1, Kings, or excuse me, of 1 Samuel is, the focus of, of 2 Samuel is, is we need a king who's not going to replace God, but instead who's going to lead us to a signpost to the true king, the Lord himself. And we get to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We see in Deuteronomy 17, God gives Israel a number of rules on how their king is supposed to order his life so that God is at the center. Look at specifically Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, even just the first half. It says this, and he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So here we see God is making a claim. He's saying that if your king takes many wives, then your king's heart will be turned away from me. And we might ask, okay, well, how exactly does this happen? How does having many wives turn the king's heart away from the Lord? And to understand that, we have to, to just take a step back and to consider what marriage was like in ancient times. They were not primarily, these marriages were not primarily rooted in affection or love, but they were rather social contracts. And this was especially true for kings, where marriage was a way to form political alliances. We actually see that in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3. Did you catch it? Let's go ahead and throw that map up. Notice that David's wife, Makah, the, the mother of Absalom, is the daughter of this pagan king, Talmai of Gesher. Do you see where Gesher is on the map? Gesher is located on the other side of Ishbosheth's capital, his territory. David has entered into this marriage alliance with a pagan king so that Ishbosheth, his rival with a claim to the throne, is placed in between these pinchers. 
And the implication is clear. David, rather than trusting in the Lord to accomplish God's promises to him, has begun to trust in political alliances. And the more he looks elsewhere for help, the easier it will be for David's heart to turn away from a trust in the Lord alone. That's a principle that's, that's true, not just for marriage, but it's true for all of life. The more you ignore the commands of God, the easier it will be for you to keep ignoring the commands of God. Paul, as he's writing to his, his friend and, and this person he was discipling, Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy, he refers to this as a seared conscience, a conscience that is cauterized so that it can no longer feel the conviction of the Spirit. The author of Hebrews refers to this as hardening your heart. The more you harden your heart, ignoring the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the harder you are making your heart, and therefore it is harder for you later on to respond to God's prompting in your life. So David here, as he's increasing the number of his wives, he's, he's actively ignoring the commands of God, and as a part of that, he's, he's actually hardening his heart. He's searing his conscience, at least in this area. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, he's, he's actually turning his heart away from the Lord. And I, I'm sure you can see how this is the compromised foundation here that's going to lead to massive failure later on in the book of 2 Samuel. This, this moment here, this is where the seeds of David and Bathsheba are sown because he refuses refuses to keep God's word from Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, we'll consider the implications of that in a, in a moment at the end of our time, but let's go ahead and keep moving. Um, we're gonna, now we've, we've seen the overview of David's family. We're going to now look at Abner, Ishbosheth, and David in verses 6 through 21. Starting in verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman." God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. See, throughout David's reign in Hebron, there's this civil war that's taking place between those who are loyal to David and those who are loyal to the house of Saul. And Saul's son Ishbosheth may be seated on the throne, but the reality, what we saw last week, we see it here as well this week, is that he's not the real power. He's a puppet king set up by Abner, the commander of his army. Right here in verse 6, we actually see this. We see the motive of Abner in all that he's doing. It says he is making himself strong in the house of Saul. See, Abner's chief concern is his own power. 
And that accusation that Ishbosheth levels at Abner in verse 7 is, is rooted in this. He's talking about Rizpah, his, his father's concubine, and a concubine was just a, a wife that actually didn't bring a dowry into the relationship, and so they were, they were considered to be um, of less importance than a, than a full wife. And it was common in ancient times for these regimes, if, if there was a, a king who, who had died um, or, or was, was tr- someone was holding a coup against them, then the the person who was holding the coup, who was trying to make a claim to the throne, would actually lie with the, the previous king's wives, take them as their own as a claim to the throne. And the, the prevailing thinking of the day was, if a king can't protect his wives, then he can't protect his nation. So when Ishbosheth here is making this accusation toward Abner, making himself strong in the house of Saul, he's saying, you're making a play for the throne by sleeping with my father's wife, Rizpah. And we, we actually don't know if this actually happened. It could have. It, it might not have been. It, we, all we know is that Abner is just, he doesn't deny it, but he gets so, so, like, bent out of shape. He, he's had enough with Ishbosheth, and I think it's because he can see the writing on the wall. Abner cares about Abner, and so in this moment, he seizes the opportunity to change his allegiance from Saul to David. Verse 12, and Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he, David, said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face until you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David jumps at the opportunity that Abner presents to him. Abner saying, I want to join you. He refuses that deal with Abner, however, as an equal. You're not my equal, Abner. I'm going to place some expectations on you. If you're going to be welcomed into my fold, you have to bring Michael, my first wife, to me. Michael is David's first wife. He, he goes all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Michael was Saul's daughter and was given to David, but later taken from David in 1 Samuel chapter 25. David is is running away from Saul, and and Saul, as a way to get to David, takes his first wife, gives her to another man. And David wants her back. But it's not out of love. It's not out of affection for her. It's because it it will strengthen his claim to the throne. This is the former king's daughter. This will give David more more reasoning in the sight of the people for why he has a legitimate claim to the throne. And so David says, if you're going to join me, you have to bring Michael with you. Verse 14. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me a wife, Michael, for whom I paid paid the bridal price of 104 skins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. 
It's interesting what David does here. He, it seems like he undermines Abner's position even more. He's like, okay, Abner, this is your job if you're going to join me. And then he goes around Abner and actually reaches out to the king of Israel, Ishbosheth, makes the same request. And Ishbosheth uh, agrees to this. Maybe he thinks it's going to be a way to create peace between him and David. So Ishbosheth takes Michael from her current husband. And I want to just pause and notice that the text refers to Michael and Paltiel here as husband and wife. There is a legitimate marriage here. The text is saying that this is a legitimate marriage in spite of the the messiness, the grossness of how this all came about. And we see that, that Michael's now current husband follows her all the way to the border of Judah, and we're presuming that, that he's begging, he's, he's pleading with Abner the entire time, please let me take her home any other way than this, please, please. And Abner threatens him at last near the border of Judah, and he goes home. It's hard not to see David as calloused, as self-serving, only thinking about himself in this moment. We talk about foreshadowing. Here is a man who destroys another marriage in order to further his own purposes of kingship. David does the exact same thing with Uriah and Bathsheba later on. He destroys another marriage for his own ends. Michael is nothing more than a pawn, and that's evidenced by the fact The rest of the chapter, she's completely absent. She's gone. We don't see her again. Let's continue in verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past, you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies." Abner also spoke to Benjamin. And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that, he may, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires." So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So Abner has done what David asked of him, really what David demanded of him. And Abner calls together all the elders of Israel to begin the process of of transferring their allegiance from Ishbosheth to David. And Abner's words, I think in verse 17, are really significant because notice he basically says this entire civil war was, was his own idea. All the other leaders of Israel to this point have wanted David as king for some time. And yet, they've continued to fight against Israel. Now it suits Abner's ambitions, however. And so not only is he going to allow it, but he's actually the one who finds himself positioning himself as the broker of the deal. And so Abner comes to Hebron, he visits with David, they celebrate this preliminary agreement before the coronation of David with this feast, and Abner leaves Hebron, 
And he begins to gather, the plan is he's going to gather all these representatives of the tribes of Israel for his coronation ceremony so that David will become the official king of all of Israel. But before that can happen, Joab catches wind of the entire thing. And that leads us to the third part of this chapter, Joab and Abner, verse 22. Just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Just pause. Notice the repetition of peace here, okay? When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know that all you are doing. So Abner is departing in peace, and we actually see it three times here in this chapter, making it very clear, explicit, almost as if this is an official declaration from David that we are hands off on this man. There is a truce that is, that is being worked on, and so even though he is an enemy combatant, he is now in, he's going in peace. He's, he's got the protection of the throne. More than that, the text is, is saying what's about to happen, David has nothing to do with it. So Abner is departing likely north. He's leaving Hebron to go back to the land of Israel. And Joab and uh, his army, they return probably from the south and from the west, coming back from these raids to Hebron. Remember who Joab is? We saw that Joab is actually David's nephew. He's the commander of David's army, and it's a good thing that Joab and Abner miss each other because in the previous chapter, we saw that Abner actually kills Joab's brother, Asahel, in the midst of a battle. And we can see Joab's attitude toward Abner right here in these verses before we go any further. Like we, we can see he does not like Abner. One bit. The news of this agreement between David and, and Abner, it, it sets him off. He flies into a rage. He claims that David has been duped by Abner. What do you do when David? He's really just here to scout out your military strength so that way he can attack. Verse 26. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Syrah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So Joab, without David's knowledge, sends messengers to Abner. He says, hey, Abner, there's more that we need to discuss come back to Hebron, and Abner has already been promised peace from David, and so he returns to Hebron, because the king's word is law, right? Well, he enters into the city gate, and he's brought into this private room as a part of the city gate complex, and that's where Joab murders him. Verse 27 tells us why. It says it's for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So Joab 
He wants revenge on Abner. He doesn't care that he ruins this potential chance at peace for Israel because his revenge, his personal feelings matter more than that. Now notice the, the location here of Abner's mo- murder because this is, this is significant. It shows us really how wicked Joab's actions are in this moment. Let me, let me take a moment to, to just talk about Israel's justice system in the ancient times. Most, most of the ancient world, uh, Israel included, operated under an eye-for-an-eye policy. And this wasn't a form of being cruel. This was just simply how you curb tendencies toward escalation, toward revenge. So punishment is limited to the crime rather than being escalated. And that includes murder. So if someone is murdered, then it is life for a life. But Israel actually had an exception to this policy in order to prevent the unnecessary shedding of blood. So if another person killed a person without intent or forethought, not what we would call murder, but really what we would call manslaughter, if that takes place, there were a handful of cities throughout Israel that were called cities of refuge, where a person who had committed manslaughter could run to, take refuge in that city, so that way they were safe from what was called the avenger of blood. Now, significantly, these cities of refuge, if we look at Joshua chapter 20, include Hebron. So someone who had committed manslaughter, not murder, not intending to kill someone, not forethought, not waiting and, 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 and trying to, to uh, you know, scheming to kill someone, but someone who had, had committed manslaughter would be able to run to Hebron, and there they would be safe. At least they should be safe. Now, remember the events of last week in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Abner did kill Joab's brother, Asahel, but it wasn't murder. I would say it wasn't even a form of manslaughter because it took place in the middle of a battle. But even if it was manslaughter, Abner would have been safe inside the city gates, inside the city walls of Hebron. He could take refuge in Hebron because Hebron, according to God's plan, was a place of safety. It was a city of refuge. And yet what happens the moment he steps inside this city of refuge? He's murdered. Joab's actions are atrocious. Abner, for all his faults, and he has has plenty, has been guaranteed safety from David. As a part of that safety, in a city of refuge, no less, he should have been protected. But Joab doesn't care about the commands of God. He doesn't care about God's covenant king, David, when his own personal vendetta is on the line. No wonder David responds the way that he does. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord and for the, for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle, who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Two parts to David's response here when he hears about Abner's death. Both 
He's, he's distancing himself from the actions of Joab and Abishai. Abishai is another one of Joab's brothers. He apparently was also there to kill Abner. First, he declares his innocence, and he places all of the blame on the house of Joab. After that, he issues a curse upon his nephews. And don't get caught up in the details, but the focus here is on David distancing himself from the actions of Joab and Abishai. David also distanced himself from Abner's murder by leading Israel in mourning for Abner's death. And that's what we see in verses 31 through 35. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not feathered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. So David does exactly what he did in chapter 1 with Saul and Jonathan when he hears about their deaths. He, he writes this song of lament for their death. He weeps publicly at their funeral. He fasts as a part of his mourning until the sun goes down. Verse 36, and all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Israel takes notice. David's actions in response to Abner's death validate his claim that he had nothing to do with this death. He didn't, he didn't intend for Abner to be killed. But that's not how the text ends. Notice the last two verses, arguably the most important verses in the entire chapter. It says this, and the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. I think these verses are a little hard to understand because what exactly are they trying to communicate? I think the heart of David's statement is when he says this, and I was gentle today, though anointed king. I was gentle today, though anointed king. So what exactly does David mean by this? Maybe, you know, one option is that David is expressing his gentleness or he's given reason for his, his mourning of Abner on display saying, I was gentle today and that's why I acted the way that I did with Abner, mourning his death even though he was my enemy. That makes sense of the I was gentle today. But I don't think it makes sense of the next statement, even though, or just though, I was anointed king. So our king's not allowed to, to show gentleness. I think there's a better understanding of what is, is being said here by David. David, when he says, I was gentle today, though anointed king, he, he's, he's not talking about he, how he mourned the death of Abner, 
based off of what comes afterward, he's talking about how he handled his nephews. Because in the very next verse, he talks about how his nephews, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than he is. So he's not talking about mourning. He's actually pointing out a weakness. He's, he's looking at how he handled what he was supposed to do with Joab and with Abishai for their actions. And he's saying, I did not punish them the way God's word commanded. Very clearly, they were supposed to be put to death. He does not do that. He says, even though I was the anointed king, I am the anointed king, even though that's my responsibility as God's covenant king over his people. David here, in this moment, is admitting that he did not and will not punish his nephews. And this is another part of David's compromise foundation. We're going to see this crop up throughout David's reign. David plays favorites. He refuses to punish those that he loves the most, that, he, he, that are closest to him, even though it has disastrous consequences on everyone else. And so when David says that, he's saying, I know what my job is as God's covenant king. I'm the king over God's people. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I couldn't do it. I just, I just couldn't do it. And here in these verses, we see David's weakness and his unwillingness to keep the word of God, and yet he recognizes and confesses that we need that type of king. We need that type of king who's better than David. We need a king who is not just gentle, who is not just just, but a king who is gentle and just. And for David and his mindset, these two things, they, they, they cannot be, you cannot be both. You cannot be a king who is gentle. You cannot also be a king who is just at the same time. And David is basically saying, we, we need a better king than even me. And that's, of course, what we've seen repeatedly throughout 2 Samuel. David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he's not the king that we need, that we desperately need. And that's really the first of, of three observations from this text. First one is this, Jesus is the perfectly gentle and perfectly just king. David doesn't know who the perfect king is, this perfectly gentle, perfectly just king is, and yet he also knows that it is not him. And, and we might wonder, oh, how can a king be, possibly be gentle and just? How can a king reign in justice and yet also be merciful? And the cross gives us the answer. Because at the cross, we see the mercy of God and the justice of God meet. Consider Paul's words to Titus. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The justice and mercy of God on display in Jesus are unfathomably good news. If you've experienced injustice in this life, you know how, how much of a balm to the soul it is when your soul is wounded to be assured that there is justice, that one day all the wrongs will be righted. And yet at the same time, if you are guilty of injustice, and all of us are to some extent, that, that news of perfect justice is terrifying news if it's not for the gentle mercy of God that is available to all of us. You see, in Jesus, we encounter life-giving justice and also life-saving mercy because Jesus is perfectly just and perfectly gentle as our king. Another observation from this text. When the Lord is absent from our decision-making, a life of unbelief is not far behind. Isn't that what we see from David here? It's not until the very last sentence, last couple sentences of this chapter that David is looking at things finally from God's perspective. The absence of the mention of God in this chapter is deafening and a life of unbelief from David is following in step. It's, it's a deafening life of unbelief here. I just want to say, I mean, it's easy to point the finger at David, but how often are we like David? How often can we go from 2 Samuel chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 2, David is, is patiently, faithfully waiting on the Lord to accomplish things in his timing, and then just the next moment we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 3, where we, we, God's nowhere to be found. We're relying on our own strength, our own methods of, of accomplishing what we want. We're only thinking about ourselves. How often do we forget the Lord? How often is God... Nowhere to be seen in our decision-making. And we find ourselves stuck in the mire of unbelief. What if we were a people? A, a, a group of people who resolved each and every day to look first to Jesus. To ask Jesus to rule our lives. For Jesus' grace to enable us to live every waking moment in the reality of his presence. When the Lord is absent from our decision-making, a life of unbelief is not far behind. Finally, and this to me is, is probably the most important takeaway, it is astonishing that God still uses and delights in David. And he still uses and delights in us too. Can you believe this? You look at, you look at David from this chapter. A womanizer. A man who uses women for his own political pawns to accomplish his own self-serving ends. This man who robs another man of his wife 
lets his nephews get off with murder because he doesn't want an awkward conversation with them. David's blind spots, whether it's favoritism or this culturally accepted practice, these blind spots are an affront to God. They're disgusting. And they should be disqualifying. One thing that my kids say a fair bit, and it drives me crazy, That's not fair. Sure, you have never heard that before. That's not fair. You read this passage. The fact that God still uses David, still delights in David, that's not fair. And then you begin to think about yourself. It's astonishing that some, God would use someone like David. It's, it's astonishing that God would use someone like me. Isn't that the gospel? That in spite of all of our faults, in spite of all of our failures, in spite of all of our shortcomings and ugliness, when we turn to Jesus, whether it is for the first time or the 10,000th time, when we're like David here, when we come before the Lord with confession and this contrite heart, there's hope for people like us. And it's not fair. Thank God it's not fair. I look at my own life, I've done thousands of things that would, should disqualify me from the love of God and yet his love remains. Countless things that should make him say, you know what, I'll use someone else, thank you very much. And yet instead, he says, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. Do you marvel at the fact that God could love and use a person like you and me and David? That's the heart of this passage. This passage leads to wonder because in spite of all of the brokenness that is on display, there's grace that can make brokenness beautiful and whole. It is astonishing, earth-shattering, unbelievable that God could use and delight in someone like David. And that's true of us too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being perfectly merciful and gentle and also perfectly just. Thank you for the gospel that makes a way for people like us for people like David to still be a part of your plan and your kingdom. God, we ask for the grace to see our shortcomings and our failures and to respond with repentance and faith and confidence 
that you forgive and you delight to use broken vessels for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.